course. All right, friends, this is, this can happen. This is lesson number six of this can happen. And as you know, this is a six part course, which means that essentially this is it. When I say this can happen, this is it. This is, this is where all the magic happens. So I want to begin, I want to begin with a story. Jerry, get ready, because you know how serious these stories are always. Um, I'm going to mute everybody, just have a nice clean background. You can unmute at any time you'd like. Um, and Jerry, that's your cue, please, to uh, get, get on the ready. So friends, they tell a story about a teacher who, who tells her class, she says, I want you to write an essay today. And what is the essay about? The essay is on what would you do if you won $1 million in the lottery? Again, think about this, she tells her class. Think about winning a million dollars in the lottery. What would you do? Write an essay about it. All the kids are furiously writing. They're writing an essay. And at the end of the class, they all hand in their assignments, their essays. And one little kid, Isaac, hands in a blank sheet of paper. So she says to Isaac, why are you handing in a blank piece of paper? What's going on? He says, I didn't write anything. She says, why not? So he says, because that's exactly what I would do if I won the lottery. I would do nothing. No, Jerry? Not even a... No? No rim shot? All right. That, but for all those uh, falling at home, that was the end of the joke, if you call it that. All right, friends. So today, we are going to explore our sixth and final session. Always a bittersweet session, given that... The, um, the nature of, of the succession is that it's usually the culmination of the course, so it's usually like the highlight of the course. At the same time, we know that it's, uh, it marks the conclusion of the course. Um, you know, we've done a lot in our previous five sessions. We've talked about the evolving material blessings of the world, of this world. We've talked about the spiritual dynamic of the Messianic era. We've spoken about our world in global and spiritual perfection. We've spoken about the arc of history and how the spiritual progress of the world has evolved from the beginning of time until, until now. Last week, we spoke about the who of the Messiah. What and who is Mashiach and what are those qualifications? Friends, tonight we delve into something that we started talking about and has come up in various pieces throughout this course, but tonight we put it all together. Tonight we ask the question, what will the, what will the world look like when Mashiach comes? What will the world look like in the Messianic era? Yes, we've cited some elements before, we've cited some, some details, but tonight we put together all of the pieces and add more pieces to paint a beautiful picture of what Judaism believes is this promised messianic era. What does it look like? What does it feel like? What is it all about? Along the way, so if you've ever wanted to have a vision into the future, tonight is your night. Along the way, we're gonna encounter miracles, the temple, we're going to encounter the lost tribes, we're going to encounter the resurrection of the dead, we're going to touch on so many topics, all in order to paint a vivid, a vivid picture of what the Messianic era looks like according 
to Judaism. So buckle up, sit back, relax, and enjoy because this is going to be a very fun ride. So when it comes to predictions, when it comes to speaking about the future, Yogi Berra once said famously, it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. That is what Yogi Berra said. Does that get one? Does that maybe get something? I don't know. Yeah, we got something. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so it's hard to speak about the future that is not yet here. Right? That's the nature of predictions, etc. But Judaism doesn't make predictions. We're basing this and tonight's conversation on the, 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 the books of the prophets, the Jewish prophets, as well and primarily on the teachings of Rambam, the teachings of Maimonides. I, I, I don't want to spend too much time going into the biography of Rambam, of Maimonides, but just know, if you're not familiar, that Maimonides was the great medieval Jewish scholar. He was a physician, a mathematician, a scientist, an astronomer, and he was an incredible scholar who codified Jewish law. He basically took the Torah, the Mishnah, the Talmud, and he organized everything into a clear and precise system of Jewish law. He didn't create the system. He organized it into a book of 14 volumes where you could study it and get pretty much the whole Torah, all of its laws, included in the works of Maimonides are sections that deal with the Messianic era, which means that he writes about Mashiach not as a hope or even a prophecy, but rather as halacha, Jewish law. This is what's going to happen based on Jewish law. So this is going to be very powerful, very, very significant, and I'm excited that you are on this journey with me tonight. All right, so that's a little bit about the, uh, the structure. I'm opening up on my side... The, uh, the PDF, which I'm going to share with you as we go along tonight's class. Okay, so we begin with a conversation about miracles. I mentioned this before, but we're going to start by talking about miracles. So, when you think about the Messianic era, one word that might come to mind is miraculous, right? A perfect world, a world in which there's no... There's no hunger, there's no war, there's no crime, there's no violence, there's no hatred, there's no jealousy. There's only plenty and only amazing things. And a, a world of spirituality, of spiritual awareness, where the, to quote Isaiah, where the knowledge of God fills, fills the earth like the water, fills the ocean, like the waters of the sea uh, cover the ocean floor. So it, it sounds like it's quite miraculous. That would be a good word to describe the Messianic era. And yet, Maimonides takes a drastically different approach, which we will see in text 1A. I'm going to share my screen with you, and we are going to jump right in. All right, if you have a book, it's on page 247. If you're following with me on the screen, then it is also on page 247. You see what I did there? All right, this is text 1A, J. Rosenheck, please get us started with text 1A from Rambam. Mishnah Torah. Yes. Do not presume that in the Messianic case any... ...will continue according to its pattern. Thank you. So Maimonides says, 
The great Rambam writes, Do not presume that anything of nature will change. The world will continue according to its pattern. Pattern is maybe a little bit of a bizarre word in the English over here. The Hebrew it says, Ella rather, Olam keminhago noheg. The world will continue on its normative course. Somebody tell me what Rambam is, tell, is, is telling us. Somebody tell me what Maimonides is teaching us about the Messianic era. Jump in. No miracles. It won't go. It's going to be on its normal course. On its normal course, no miracles. So I'm going to ask you what we call in Yiddish a klutz kasha. A klutz kasha is the obvious question. It's so obvious, sometimes no one asks it. But it's the obvious question. And maybe a person feels embarrassed asking the question. But you know what? Sometimes it's too obvious even to ask. And so we need to ask it. So here's my, I'll, I'll be the klutz. I'll ask the klutz kasha. I'll. I'm volunteering. I'm raising my hand. And here's the obvious question. What do you mean that there's no miracles in the Messianic era? The whole Messianic era is one big miracle. The whole thing is miraculous. A perfect world. A spiritual reality. Are you kidding me, Rambam, Maimonides? What kind of no miracle are we talking about here? The whole thing is mir miraculous. So what's going on here? So I need to share with you. Uh, Richard, you have an answer? Well, I think I'm going to answer that uh, the veil will be lifted and all the things that seem normal. Beautiful. I love it. I love it. Hold that thought. Good. Good. Hold that thought. We're going to explain it a little bit less mystically, but you'll see that we're, we're, we're heading toward this really beautiful image of the Messianic era according to Maimonides. So... But let me, let me develop the question on, on Maimonides a little, bit, a little bit further. You know, he's writing that, no, don't expect the miracles. Olam kiminhago noheg, the world will go according to its normal you know, pattern, its normal path. Business as usual. That's not the Mashiach we signed up for. What kind of messianic era is that? The world as usual? So then what's, what's messianic about it? Furthermore, let me ask another question. Furthermore, there are tremendous numbers. There are a tremendous number of prophecies that talk about miracles that are going to happen when the Messiah comes in the Messianic era. So many prophecies, including, for example, the prophecy cited in text 1b, which I'm about to pull up on the screen. All right, um, Joy, Dr. Maxi, please read text 1b from Isaiah. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the yearling will be with the lion, and a little child will lead them all. Sounds like, my friend, sounds like a kumbaya and a Disney film. This sounds like the ending of a wonderful Disney film. The wolf and the lamb and the leopard and the goat and the calf and the yearling and the lion and the child. And everyone's, everyone's having a fabring and everyone's together. They're all enjoying life. It's great. It's peaceful. It's wonderful. This is Isaiah describing what the Messianic era looks like. And my friends, how would you 
How would you characterize text 1B? Give me a word that characterizes this type of reality in which all of these animals that are by nature devouring each other no longer devour each other. Idyllic. Good. What else? Miraculous. Miraculous. Good. It's, this is not normal. This is not, in the words of Maimonides, Olam Kiminhago Nohig. This is not the world in its usual pattern. No, my friends. The wolf with the lamb, by the way, I need to mention. Listen, I know not everybody eats meat, but if you do, there is a restaurant in Manhattan, and I'm sure they even have vegetarian, uh, a vegetarian menu as well, called Wolf and Lamb. It's owned by a Chabadnik. It's owned by a Chabad person. It's literally called Wolf and Lamb. And man, is that food messianic. But here's the point. I mean, it's heaven. It's a taste of heaven. So, yeah. But we've, we've been discussing the evolution from creation till now, the progression. And we see we live almost in heaven right now. It's what you make of it. Look at Good. all the miracles that we have every Good. day. It's just a natural evolution Good. of the miracles that we experience every day. I like it. I like it. So, but I want to make a distinction. And we're going to find a distinction between human beings and animals. And I think everyone here is going to appreciate this distinction. Maimonides is of the opinion. And we're going to see this throughout tonight's session. Don't expect miracles. Now, if miracles happen, great. But the Messianic era is not hinged upon, it's not dependent upon the miraculous happening. Remember I spoke about a few weeks ago, the treasure in the mountain? Remember I gave you the parable of the treasure in the mountain? And how, you know, some people think like dig, 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 and then there's going to be some sort of supernatural reality or world. That's not the Jewish take. And I believe, Richard, this is what you were saying, and Jay, this is what you're saying. Right, that Judaism believes that the world of Mashiach, the Messianic era, is the world that we create. Maimonides believes that more than anyone else. And Maimonides teaches the halacha, the Jewish law of Mashiach. This is exactly what the prescription is. The Messianic era is a time in which the world is evolved. And is it a miracle? It's an evolution. It's a process. A miracle? A process. A betterment? Yes. A miracle? Not necessarily. But what do you do with the animals? How will the wolf and the lamb evolve? I mean, I'll ask you a question. When was the last time you saw even an attempt with the wolf and the lamb sitting down for peace talks? I'm not saying success. I'm saying even an attempt at such, which is what leads my manis to do something quite incredible. Listen to this. We're going to see this as a pattern throughout tonight's class. My manis takes the approach. This is okay. I'm, I'm like news. Like I'm trying to flash whatever I can, like big idea approaching, big idea approaching. My manis teaches that many of the prophecies from Isaiah and other Jewish prophets are not meant, are not necessarily meant to be understood regarding the Messianic era, literally, but could be allegorical or metaphorical and refer to other related themes. Instead of telling you what Maimonides says, let's read it ourselves. And with this, we answer both questions 
that we posed. If you don't remember the questions, I'll remind you after we answer them. Let's take a look at our screens and uh, take a look at text 1C. This is how Maimonides explains everything. All right, let's ask um, Steve. Steve Horowitz, please read. Please unmute and please read text 1C again. Maimonides, Mishnah Torah. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. These words are an allegory and a parable. The interpretation of the prophecy is that the Jews will dwell, dwell at peace together with those wicked Gentiles who sought to devour them like a wolf and a leopard. They will no longer steal or destroy, but live at peace with Israel. Similarly, other messianic prophecies of this kind are allegories. Uh, only in the messianic area, era will we understand their true meaning. Maimonides says something incredible, and this is, again, this is the, what, the big idea number one of tonight's class. He says, there are prophecies, let's start with the end, right? There are messianic prophecies that are allegories. And he says, the one that we read in text 1b about the wolf dwelling with the lamb, right? That, that one with the animals getting along, he says, it's an allegory. It's an allegory. It's referring to the anti-Semite getting along with the Jew in the Messianic era. That's what the wolf is, and that's what the lamb is. So the wolf, which typically devours the lamb, the anti-Semite, the crusader, the, the expulsioner, I don't know if that's a real word, the, um, the Nazi, who hunts down the Jew throughout history in the Messianic era will get along with the Jew. Inquisitor. The Inquisitor. There you go, Inquisitor. And you're going to ask, are you kidding me? How is that ever going to happen? How could the anti-Semite get along with the Jew? And the answer is, according to Maimonides, it's not a miracle. It's an evolution. It's not a miracle, it's progress. It's not a miracle, it's being a mensch. So the Messianic era is not an era of the miraculous. It's an era of menschlichkeit, which, in Yid, which is Yiddish for being a mensch. It's an era marked by being very menschy, not being very miraculous. Now when it comes to the animals, no, the wolf will not dwell with the lamb literally. The wolf is still a wolf, the lamb is still a lamb, because animals are not held to the same evolutionary standard as human beings. And I don't mean that in the, in the Darwinian sense. I mean that in the sense that animals don't have the same level of free choice, the same level of comprehension, the same level of analytical thought, the same ability to override emotion and instinct as do human beings. In Maimonides' vision, which is what is the only recorded vision of the Messianic era in Jewish law, which is why we're focusing on it pretty much exclusively tonight. In the, in the Maimonidean vision of the Messianic era, human beings, I don't even like really using the word evolved because it sounds also somewhat miraculous. Human beings have progressed, maybe. Human beings have come to the realization that love is good, hate is bad, peace is good, war is bad. And no longer will, in this example that he cites, the hater of the Jew hate the Jew. It's not going to happen anymore. 
So the Messianic era is a time when people will finally drop the hate. As we said in lesson one, drop the hate, drop the war, drop the hostility, drop the jealousy, drop the anger. Is that a miracle? No. How do I know it's not a miracle? I'll ask you a question. Do you have the ability, not are you going to do this tomorrow, but do you have the ability tomorrow to end the hostility that exists be perhaps between you and someone else? Do you have the ability on your end to end it? Yes or no? Yes? We all know that the answer is yes. Yeah? But we hold on to things because why should I go first? <laughs> they, it's their issue. I should go first. And all sorts of other excuses that we have. But you and I know that we can decide to override our hurt, our anger, our frustration, etc. And make peace. At least on our end. Uh, negate the ego. Negate the ego. Yes. Ego, of course, is edging God out. We bring God into the picture, deflate the ego, and now we can fabrang with somebody else. Now we can get along. Now we can connect with someone else in peace. So again, just to be very clear here, Maimonides' position, which we saw in text 1a, the very first text we read, is that the Messianic era is not necessarily marked with miracles here and miracles there. And the fact that the prophets seem to indicate that there will be miracles. You just have to know how to read it. It's not necessarily the wolf and the lamb getting along, because that would be a miracle, because there's no information that the wolf, it's not like the wolf is going to school and learning how to get along with the lamb and learning the dangers of hate and, and, and progressing on that level. So there's nothing intrinsic to the wolf and the lamb that would lead that situation to peace other than a miracle. God essentially changing the biological, emotional, etc. nature of a wolf, of a predator to be a non-predatory animal. So the idea that a predator would become a non-predator in the animal kingdom, that's a miracle. Maimonides says, don't read it like that. We're not talking about animals. It's an allegory for people who can evolve on their own. We can evolve on our own. We can improve on our own. Does this make sense? I'm just checking it now. Does this make sense? Yes? Okay, perfect. So this is the first big idea. It's not a miracle. It's being a mensch. Take a look along these lines. Take a look at text number two. Look at what Rambam continues to write about the Messianic era. Text number two. Let's ask Stan. Stan, if you don't mind, please read text number two. Our sages taught there will be no difference between the current age and the messianic era except the emancipation from our subjugation to the Gentile governments. And so along the lines of what we just explained about Maimonides, he says this constitutes the core, he calls it the soul difference, right? There will be no difference between now and the messianic era except so in other words, this is the one, this is the core difference. The core difference is no one is going to hate. You know what the kids like to say today? Hate is gonna hate in the messianic eras, in the messianic era, haters ain't gonna hate. There's no hate. And if there's no hate, then they'll let the Jew live. The Jewish people, like other nations, will live 
and be able to do their thing without this country or that country trying to exile or destroy or persecute or convert. Everyone will leave the Jew alone. Everyone's going to leave the Jew alone. That is the sole distinction between now and the Messianic era. So this is the Shita. Shita means the, 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 the position, the perspective of Rambam, of Maimonides. Maimonides says, Olam Kiminhago Noheg, the world is going to go in its normative way. Number one. Number two, the prophecies of the mir- the miraculous prophecies are an allegory. You can interpret them to refer to things that are in our control. And yes, the Messianic era is marked by peace on earth. When, in the example, at least relative to the Jewish people, the world or those that hated the Jew will no longer hate the Jew. And that will cause directly what we just read in text number two, which is Jewish sovereignty, Jewish freedom, the ability to be Jewish without another nation bossing the Jew around. Now, you might say the following. You might be thinking, well, one second. Do we have Mashiach? We have Israel. We have our own state. We have our own country that is free from, it's not subjugated to other countries. So maybe this is it. Maybe we've got the Messiah in the form of Israel. However, I don't know if anyone thought that, but the reality is I thought to bring it up just in case somebody was thinking it. Without getting into all of the details on this, the short answer is not exactly. And the reason is, yes, we have a state of Israel where millions of Jews live under Jewish governance. That is true. But Jews are still subject and on some level still subjugated to the power of other nations. We've seen this time and again over the 70 plus years of the state of Israel's um, existence and even in our times that Jews, Israel, not exactly able to, to truly be free from, other, from, from the influence of other nations, etc., not going to get into, into, it's not a political conversation, it's just a fact. It's not the level of peace and sovereignty and, 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 and just being able to exist, as Maimonides is describing, uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a hallmark of the Messianic era. All right, questions. Let me, let me check in and take any questions so far. We have a, yes, J- Jerry, go in. So... The Messianic era is for Jews only? No. There Excellent conflicts qu- that exist in the Well, yeah. it, it says that Jews will stop being subjugated. So does it say that the, in Ireland the Catholics and Protestants won't keep fighting. Yes, it also says that. So, so ex- excellent question. Thank you for mentioning it because it's a really important question. It will come up a little bit later when we describe some other things, but it's really important to discuss right now. So in, in this context, the, the answer is yes. The vision of the Messianic era, according to Judaism and Maimonides, etc., is peace on earth for all people having their sovereignty and their peace, and no one bugging each other, no one at each other's throats. Whether it's Northern Ireland and Ireland, it, yes, that's, that, that's the vision. Where do we see this? And how come Maimonides only writes about the, about the Jewish um, experience in this? Well, the short answer is Maimonides is writing in the book of Jewish law about the Jewish experience of the Messiah, so he, of the Messianic era. So he, he, he's the frame 
the immediate perspective is a Jewish perspective, which is why he's framing it in very Jewish-centric terms. But elsewhere in that same chapter, we, in Maimonides, where he's writing what we read about, so he writes that in the time of the Messianic era, there will be no wars, no famine, no hunger, all of the stuff that we talked about in Lesson 1, which we'll review a little bit today, he mentions generally across the board on a global level, not specifically to Jews. So the short answer is, that's a longer answer, the short answer is it applies to everybody. Maimonides writes in this one quote that we cited, um, a Jew-centric sounding um, exposition of this only because he's writing in a book of Jewish law, as would be expected to any author writing to any specific audience, that they would tailor it to the audience. That is who Maimonides is writing to. But thanks for asking so that we could clarify. Um, Mom. I have a, a, a question and maybe an answer to my question. Um, <laughs> yeah, you were, it says that the world will continue as the world is, is carrying on right now, as the world as we know it. But maybe, maybe it's the world as we used to know it before we got thrown out. Thrown out of the Garden of Eden? Could be, could be. And that, that, be. and that would be no, no sickness, no pain, no, no um, having to work hard for what we need. It's, so, it's as we discussed in lesson four, it would be a similar model, but it's even greater because it's the world that we built. It's not, the, it's, not the, it's not the perfection, it's not the paradise that was given to us. It's the one that we fought for and we created. That's what I mean. We'll but go getting back, back yeah. That. Yeah, could yeah. be, could be. But I think that's already a deeper exp exposition on it. That's not what we would say pshat. That's not the simple understanding of Rambam. Rambam is differentiating between a miraculous vision of Mashiach, of the Messianic era, versus a more, um, a more, um, nor I don't know what the right word is, normative. but a normative, I don't know, normative, but a more, a less, a less miraculous version of it. Hey, right. And he's not saying, no, I'm, I heard, no, I got, I got, no, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. I, but again, that's, I don't know. I don't think that's, that's shot. And I don't think that's simple. The simple meaning of, of Maimonides. I think that's, that's a, that's a drash, which is beautiful. Um, but simply what I want, but I want to emphasize, here's why I want to emphasize this because it's very important in understanding the Rambam's perspective on the Messianic era is to differentiate between those that, that pump up the miraculous element of it and Maimonides who describes it as the perfect version of this reality. In other words, the most evolved and most perfected version of this reality as opposed to a, another you know, wild, newfangled, out-of-the-box type of thing. Right. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Like, uh, people who have sicknesses will be healed. People who have to work six days a week and rest on Shabbos will work one day a week and rest the rest of the week. Right. So it's going to be a better version, but it's still our world that we can understand. We're not going to grow wings and fly around. Right. Okay, good, good. Wear halos. Good. So that's, that's what I'm just trying to bring out. Good. Okay. Ray, jump in. <laughs> Ray, did you have a question? I'm, not if you didn't have a question, but I thought I saw you. No? Richard does. Richard, go jump in. Yeah, this is just my own opinion, not based on anything that's even said tonight. It just seems to me like my mommy's version of the Messianic era is a starting point. 
rather than an ending point. Interesting. Normative, normative and wonderful and peace. But from there, you build on seeable miracles. Interesting. Not to begin with. From there, you, you build upon that. Okay. You know what? Hold that thought. Hold that thought because we may get, we may circle back to something along those lines. Good, good insight. Okay, let's let's continue with this by looking further at, at how Maimonides describes the Messianic era. All right, so I'm going to share my screen, and we're going to look at some more details that Maimonides shares, and this is going to be text number three. All right, here we go. Um, so let's do text number three and let's ask David. David, please jump in. David, text number three, Maimonides. The Messianic king will arise and renew the Davidic dynasty, restoring it to its initial sovereignty. He will build the temple and gather the first of Israel. In his days, it, the, the observance of all the statues will return to the previous state. So my, thank you. Maimonides describes, again, we're, we're, tonight it's all about what does that world look like? What does the messianic world look like? So we now, now know it's not, not necessarily marked by miracles. It's, a, it's an evolved world. He now describes some practical elements, some very detail, some, some, some details. He says, number one, we have a messianic king, which we spoke about last week, who arises from and renews the Davidic dynasty. Um, and now there is a sovereignty. We have now a Jewish governance, if you will. Again, tying into the sovereignty theme, we now have a Jewish leader, a Messianic leader. Good. Next, the second detail. We're going to go through this in detail in a moment. The second detail is building the temple. Third detail, gathering the dispersed of Israel. Fourth detail, the observance of all, stat of all the statutes of Torah will return to its previous state, which we will explain momentarily. So let's go through this one piece at a time, and again, just further develop the vision of the Messianic era. So number one, Mashiach and the Davidic dynasty. So we explained last week that yes, there will be a human being of flesh and blood who will lead the Messianic movement, if you will, revolution, evolution. This person is known as Moshiach, or I guess in English, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. They will come from the family of King David and serve in a similar capacity as the original King David. Now, the question is why? If the world's evolved and, you know, there's progress happening and the world's a peaceful place, why do you need a figure? Why do you need a Messiah, a Mashiach? Why do you need a go-to person? And... I don't know that I have any deep mystical answer for, I mean, there are some mystical answers, but on a very pragmatic level, and this is what I want to share with you tonight, every revolution needs a leader, right? It's a, it's a fact of human nature. It's a both need, a need of human nature and a desire of human nature. An orchestra needs a conductor. The orchestra wants a conductor. And a redeemed world, likewise, needs a Mashiach. It wants a Mashiach. It wants a go-to person to look toward, to lead the charge. It's the nature of human beings. As Maimani said, nature is not going to be magically transformed. It's, gonna, it's going to be improved upon the best, right? The, um, as my mother said, right, the, 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 the paradise version 
is going to come out, but it's not a completely radically different version. It's the best. It's the best. Me, it's the best. You, it's the best world. So in that world that is pretty much a standard world, just perfected. So we, again, human beings want and need, crave a leader, someone to guide and direct, right? People go on tours in cities, right? I guess the people that go on tours in cities, we would call them tourists. Crazy. We should, we should coin that term. Anyway, tourists. Everyone loves a, uh, a, a good tour, a guided tour. By the way, I have an, I've, I've had an idea for a long time, and I feel like someone's going to take this idea at some point, so I might as well just share it. Um, fake tours. I was like, fake tours of New York City. Imagine you go on a tour, and essentially it's a comedy show. Just like fake stuff, just, you know, off the cuff, improv. Anyway, it's better on my head than it's coming out right now. But I've done it with our team group, and it's hilarious. And fake tours New York City, it's going to be a thing at some point. Anyway, back to our story. Maybe Atlanta also. I don't know if Atlanta has enough stuff to make up. Getting back to the story. So Maimonides says, number one, there's a Messiah, a Mashiach. Number two, Davidic dynasty, David, the royal family, the Mishpacha, the leadership. All right, done. Next step. And let's now jump and delve into the next step. And get, and get into it. The vision of, of Mashiach, right? Perfected world, evolved world. People are nice. People are menshi. We have a Mashiach. We have a leader in this. And now he builds a temple. We spoke about this last week a little bit. Let's jump into it a little bit more. He builds the temple, the holy temple in Jerusalem. Now, according to Maimonides, this building of the temple will be spearheaded by the Messiah, by Mashiach. And although there are sources... And I believe this question has been asked in previous sessions by some of you. Although there are sources that talk about the temple descending from on high in a a miraculous fashion, guess who doesn't talk about a miraculous version of the temple? Guess who? Three guesses, the first two don't count. Who? Maimonides! Good. Maimonides does not talk, talk about a messianic version of the temple descending from on high. Why? Because Maimonides prefers a version that we can wrap our heads around. That is the basic version. I like the way Richard said it. It's a baseline. Now, could there be things on top of it? Perhaps. And we will discuss that, yes, there will be other things on top of it. But the basic version, the basic Messianic package, you know, you can do the upgrade, but the basic package for the Messianic uh, era is not necessarily a miracle. It's a perfected world. It's an evolved world. And there is a temple and we build it or the Mashiach, the Messiah oversees the building. And you might be wondering about the logistics. I get this question all the time, like, Rabbi, do you know what's going on over there? Temple Mount? Have you been paying attention? What? Some Jews are going to come along and just say, hey guys, we're just going to just clear it and build on top of it. No big deal. Nothing to see here. We'll be done in a little while. Like, that's, how is that going to work? Like, what's the plan, Stan? Like, how is that even a thing? Right? So here we go. Here we go. You ready? Remember, the vision of Maimonides is... A world in which there is no longer hatred, no longer animosity, 
No longer Jew hatred specifically, as he cited, but rather an appreciation and an evolved and developed and perfected appreciation for the Jewish people and what the temple represents. In a world, not to sound like a movie trailer, in a world where Judaism is appreciated, the Jewish people are appreciated, Jewish forms of worship are appreciated, can you imagine in that world, and there's peace, right? Can you imagine in such a world how it wouldn't be a problem? I could. I could. It won't be a problem. When Mashiach comes, when Mashiach is here in this image of a world, it's not going to be a problem. It's going to sort itself out. In fact, there is a precedent for this. There's a Talmudic, a beautiful Talmud. I believe it's a Talmudic statement. Let me quickly take a look at this. I'm going to share it in a moment. Um, no, it's a Midrashic. Okay, basically the same era, even a little bit earlier. There's a beautiful Midrashic source that says even regarding the previous temples that were destroyed by, well, the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. The second temple was destroyed by the Romans. And the Midrash says that if only those nations knew how beautiful and valuable the temple was for them, for the whole world, including those nations, they would have never destroyed the temple. On the contrary, they would have put guards around the temple to make sure that it wasn't destroyed, that it was protected and safe. Let's take a look at this inside um, as we go through these pages. All right, 252, we have a beautiful excerpt. Before we get to the text, a beautiful excerpt from an illustrated, an illuminated Haggadah, which depicts the temple. I can't tell you if that's a super accurate, you know, to scale a vision of it, version of it, but it is, it is a version of, uh, it is certainly a depiction of the third temple, maybe built soon. Here's the Midrash that I, um, that I referenced earlier. All right, so let's jump in. Let's ask Donna. Donna, please read text number four from the Midrash. If the nations of the world knew how beneficial the holy temple was for them, they would have surrounded it with fortifications in order to guard it. Which means instead of destroying it, they would have spared it. Not spared. They would have more than spared. They would have protected it. They would have, they would have held it in the highest esteem if they only realized what's going on, which tells us one thing, that what separates the, the temple's destruction from the temple, from, from the other nations actively seeking its, 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 um, its, um, its, its rebuilding or its, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's being intact, it's not the word I'm looking for, but what separates that is just awareness, straight up awareness. When the nations are not aware of the temple, they want to destroy it. When they're aware of what a temple is, what Judaism is, what a Jew is, what a holy temple is, when they're aware of that, there's no problem. On the contrary, they want a temple as much as we want a temple. So we look at the world and we say, how is the temple going to, how is that going to happen? How is it ever going to happen? Like, what, what type of miracle has to happen? Miracle? Maimonides says, no. Miracle? Who says miracle? It can happen in natural fashion. We just need to get to the point where we have an awareness and appreciation and a value for the other, and for the Jew, and for the Jewish people, and for Judaism, and for the temple. And at that, I, I don't mean to minimize it. I mean, these are, big, these are big deals. But when you have that, then the rest flows. 
right? The rest flows. It's a natural thing. So nothing to worry about regarding the building of the temple. In fact, as Isaiah tells us in his prophecy, the nations in the Messianic era will treat the temple as their own. So um, the question that was asked before, like I think Jerry asked the question, is the, is the Messianic era for, for all the nations or just for the Jewish people? It's for everybody. And everybody's going to be involved in their own space and with the, Holy, with the Jewish temple, as they were in the times of Solomon, in the heyday of, uh, of, of the first temple era. I'm going to share my screen and let's take a look at now text number five, house for all nations. Let's ask, um, let us ask, who am I going to ask? Ray. Ray, where is Ray? Hold on. Ray, there you are. Okay. If you don't mind, please unmute. Yes, you got it. And please read text five from Isaiah. The ten tribes. No, no, no. This is text number five, page, sorry, Ray, 254. 254, text five. It begins with the word that Isaiah. One second, please. Sure, no worries. The world, right? The word, the word, yeah. The word. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, prophesied concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall be at the end of the days that the mountain of God's home shall be firmly established at the top of the mountain. It shall be raised above the hills, and all the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall go, and they shall say, Come, let us go up to God's mountain, to the house of the God of Jacob, and let him reach us of his way, and we will go in his path. So this is a prophecy about the Messianic era. And is it a miracle, or is it just awareness? A certain form of what we might call enlightenment. Just awareness and appreciation. And suddenly, hostility is replaced with respect and love and appreciation and a desire to connect. And now you have the nations of the world that might have been previously hostile to the Jew and to Judaism and to all things temple-related, perhaps. So now it's a completely different picture. Is it a miracle? I don't know if it's a miracle. I think it is simply, as Maimani says, an evolution. This is the, the, the perspective, the approach of Maimonides. Now, the next big thing that we read in text three, if you recall, we talked about the Messiah from the house of David, rebuilding the Davidic dynasty, and we talk, it talked about building the temple, and then he said the ingathering of the exile. What happens in the Messianic era is now Jews from around the world will be gathered back together in the Holy Land. So that is, that's the next big ticket item on our list of things that are happening in the Messianic era and what the Messianic era looks, Messianic era looks like. So once again, this won't be a miracle. This will be quite natural, right? And, and, and this explains the order of events. You see, once there's a holy temple, once there's a holy temple that emits such spiritual beauty and such spiritual light, it will automatically attract Jews and others from across the globe, from around the world. That's why Maimonides, as I just mentioned, specifically lists this accomplishment after the rebuilding of the temple. He says, the temple, in the Messianic era, the temple will be rebuilt, and then 
the, the, uh, the exiled Jews will be gathered together once again in, in the Holy Land. It's not a miracle. It's a natural product of the times and what will be happening then. Um, the temple will be, think of like a magnet. The temple will be as a magnet that draws, that draws the dispersed, the diaspora back home. All right, now, so we're in the middle of Maimonides' vision for the Messianic era. We just spoke about the ingathering of the, the exiled Jews. So I want to take a moment and focus on a fascinating topic, which is the topic of the 10 lost tribes. Raise your hand if you have heard or you're familiar with the concept of 10 lost tribes. Okay, 10 lost tribes. I'm seeing a lot of hands go up. Okay, Let, just to make sure we're on, we're on the same page and for the benefit of those that might not be super familiar with the 10 lost tribes because it's not something that's, you know, everywhere in Jewish thought. It doesn't come up all the time. So just to explain what's going on with that. Um, oh, and also you may have noticed that Maimonides writes about the, the gathering of the dispersed Jews, but he doesn't make mention necessarily of the 10 tribes being restored. So 10 lost tribes being restored. So what's going on with that? So to understand this, let's learn a little bit more about what, who and what the 10 lost tribes were, or who the 10 tribes were and how they got lost in the first place. So let's go back in history a little bit to the time uh, immediately following the reign of King Solomon. So there were three Jewish kings thus far. There was King Saul, who was the first king, King David, and King David's son, King Solomon, Shlomo HaMelech. Solomon. Following Solomon's reign, the next generation, the nation, the Jewish nation split and Israel divided into two kingdoms, each with their own Jewish king. Now, some of you may be like, yeah, this is obviously what happened in Jewish history. Some of you, some of you may be thinking, this happened? This happened. This happened. After the reign of King Solomon, the Jewish kingdom split into two. The kingdom, and they were known as the kingdom of the south and the kingdom of the north. The southern kingdom consisted of two tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And the other ten tribes comprised the northern kingdom. So we had ten tribes. You, you see where we're going with this, right? You had ten tribes in the north, or considered to be the northern kingdom, and the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, in the south, the southern kingdom. It was known actually more precisely as the southern kingdom of Judah, which included Judah and Benjamin, and the northern kingdom of Israel, which included the other ten tribes. Well, tragically, I mean, there was a lot of drama that went on with two different kings and, and the Jewish people being split. I don't want to get into all the drama. I want to get into the tragedy for just a quick moment. Around the year 550 before the Common Era, so we're now, what are we, 20, I should know this, 2021, add another 550 years or so. So we're talking about 2,570 years ago or so, right? A little over 2,500 years ago. The Northern Kingdom was absolutely devastated by a marauding nation, a pillaging nation known as the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a 
superpower at the time, a regional superpower. The Assyrians, led by their king, they came in to the northern kingdom of Israel, and one after the other, they fought wars, they fought battles, and they battled the Jewish people in the north, the northern kingdoms, and one by one were victorious over and exiled the tribes of the northern kingdom. Again, one at a time, they took them, and they took them out of Israel and just put them around in other nations, basically to disperse the Jews and to get rid of them. This happened one after the other to the ten tribes in the north, to the point that there were no northern, there was no northern kingdom left, no tribes left. This is what we call the ten lost tribes, right? They didn't get lost, right? It's not like they got lost. They were exiled. They were forced. They were beaten and forced out of their land, out of their homes, and just scattered amongst the nations. And I'm sure you can appreciate this. This was a time before the ability to connect and communicate. This is before the Torah was, or the, 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 the oral Torah, the explanations were written down. There was essentially no, really no way to survive and maintain uh, accuracy to the Jewish faith in, with, with such a situ- in such a predicament. And indeed, that was the, the goal of the Assyrians. That was literally the, the, the objective. And they did, unfortunately, a very good job from their perspective. It was devastating, devastating for the Jewish people, a devastating experience and a, a devastating moment in Jewish history. Now, we also know that a little bit later, the prophet Jeremiah... The Jewish prophet Jeremiah went around to try to gather as many of these 10 lost tribe Jews back to the Holy Land. And he did. He was effective to some extent. But by far, not, not all the Jews that had been exiled returned. And many of those, or, or all of those, uh, uh, were, were lost to history. And, and I, I, I know, I, I, I know that you know, and I know that I know. That there are various, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it's claims in a dismissive way. I'm saying there are various theories. Oh, this tribe in this country, they have some Jewish practices. I bet they're from the, from the lost tribes. That country, that country, this country, that. And it could be 100% true. But there's, we don't have clear and definitive, um, uh, there's no clear, unless there is. If there is, there is. But in most cases, you don't have a clear um, progression, um, unbroken chain, Jewish chain connecting um, uh, modern-day people that have some sort of Jewish, similar Jewish customs to the original. I'm not saying they're not. They're not Jewish. They're not from the Ten Lost Tribes. What I'm saying is the Ten Tribes being exiled was devastating and caused all sorts of confusion to the point that there's a dispute in the Mishnah, which I'm going to show you right now. There's a dispute in the Mishnah as to whether or not um, when Mashiach comes, if those ten lost tribes are going to come back or if they, at this point, have been lost forever, tragically. Take a look at the following text that I'm sharing with you. Um, This is going to be text number six. Text number six. On page 255. Deborah, are you up to reading? 
love for you to read. Yeah. Yes. All right. The, the ten tribes are not destined to return, as it is stated, God casts them into another land like this day. Just as the day passes never to return, so have they gone into exile never to return. This is the view of the Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Eliezer said, like this day, just as the day darkens and then brightens, so the ten tribes who experience darkness will in the future experience light. So thank you. Here we have a classic dispute, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Eliezer, a classic dispute in the Mishnah as to the ultimate destiny of the ten lost tribes. Rabbi Akiva takes, I would call it a bit of a harsher approach. He says, once they've been exiled and they didn't return with Jeremiah's um, reclamation of some of the ten lost tribes, once they've been so assimilated, not even assimilated, so lost to the Jewish people, they're not going to come back in the Messianic era. Rabbi Eliezer says, no, no. Just like the day darkens and then brightens, so too it was a very dark period for these tribes, but it will be better. I will tell you that, I don't know, there's no definitive halachic ruling either way. It's not like Jewish law says definitely one way or the other on this question or on this issue. But most commentaries on the Mishnah, most post-Mishnah commentaries seem to lean toward Rabbi Yezer's approach that yes, there will be hope, there will be a reclamation, there will be a return for the Ten Lost Tribes. So I just wanted to mention that in the context of what Maimonides wrote about the ingathering of the exiles, how when Mashiach comes, he'll build a temple and then all the Jews will come back. The question is, does that include the Ten Tribes? I'm showing you where there's a classic dispute in the Mishnah about this. And I'm telling you, I guess it's more than anecdotally, I'm just telling you that based on commentaries, the consensus, the majority seem to lean toward the perspective that they will be brought back. They will be brought back. How come Maimonides doesn't weigh in on this? I guess it's kind of a little bit of, a, of, a, of an unclear situation. So maybe Maimonides didn't want to rule on anything definitively in Jewish law, as opposed to you know, this being one of those things that we'll kind of wait and see what happens. I will say, just to conclude this, I think it's a fascinating conversation, but just to conclude it, I mentioned before about certain areas, certain regions, certain peoples that it seems like they could very well be Jewish. You do have, I mean, oh, hey, Ellie. Hey, how's it going? Um, so you do have this, uh, this idea that um, there, are, there are people that have very strong Jewish customs, right? We know like Ethiopian Jews and, and, and some others perhaps. So, you know, it, 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 it depends on who, what, where, when, the tradition, you know, the ability to go back and kind of, you know, create links and see, you know, is this indeed from, you know, having an original connection or are these just similar, you know, type of, uh, of, of, of customs and observances? It's a fascinating topic. Um, anyway, one that hopefully we'll be able to see the fulfillment of when Mashiach comes and we'll be reunited. I'm personally on Team Rabbi Eliezer on this one, right? The Ten Lost Tribes, I, I, for what it's worth, which is eh, not that much relative to the Talmud or Rabbi Akiva at all, right? But like where I'm standing or sitting right now, I think I'm, I'm pro Team Ten Tribes uh, getting, back, getting back in the game. All right, let's continue with, oh, the last thing that we read, going back to text three, Maimonides gives a whole bunch of things that realities of the Messianic era, 
It's going to, just to recap, it's going to be, uh, there's going to be a Messiah from the house of David, returning the, restoring the Davidic dynasty. He's going to build a temple. The Jewish people will be gathered. And what's the final point that he says? Jewish law and practice will be restored like it was back in the day. Well, what does that mean? That sounds very, very vague. Let me explain. So right now, out of, so there are 613 mitzvot. 613. It's a lot. Different 613 different commandments. Now, 365 of them are do not do's. Don'ts. Like don't do this, don't do the other. So if you're just sitting there, not doing much, then you're good with those. So let's focus on the positive commandments, right? As long as you're not harming anybody, you're pretty much not violating, you know, one of those six, one of those 365. What about the other 248? Those are the positive mitzvot. Listen to this. This, is, this, will, this may surprise you. It's a staggering number, staggeringly low number. Of the 248 positive mitzvot, the dues, there are only 87 that you and I can do today. Only 87. Like, you know, listening to the show from Rosh Hashanah, eating matzah, observing Shabbat, like... There are only 87 mitzvot that you do today. The rest are don't do. So, so just don't do it. But doing Jewish is only 87 things out of 248. Why? What happened to the other, whatever the math is? Right? What happened to those others? Simple answer. We don't have a Jewish king. We don't have a temple. We don't have Jews gathered in Israel. Remember those three points, the three prior points that Maimonides said? There will arise a king Messiah who will rebuild the temple and gather the dispersed of Israel to, to gather the dispersed to Israel? Yeah. Those are the reasons why we only have 87 commandments. Because we don't have a Jewish king, because we don't have a Jewish monarchy sovereignty, we don't have a temple, and we don't have most Jews gathered in the Holy Land. Therefore, for example, the mitzvah of Hakel, which is gathering once every seven years as a nation. Men, women, and children would gather at the, at the end of the festival on Sukkot every seven years. We don't do that today. I mean, we gather for other things, but gathering in Jerusalem in the temple, well, we don't have that either. But there's no king, so you can't do Hakel. And then you don't do a jubilee year, which is one of the mitzvot of the Torah, because there's no... There is no, um, no, what's the temple one? I'm sorry. Um, oh, we can't make a holiday pilgrimage to the temple when there's no temple, nor is there a sacrificial service uh, for, the same, for, the same, uh, for the same money. Likewise, you don't, you don't um, celebrate a jubilee year every 50 years because the majority of Jews are not in Israel. So based on the previous three criteria, Maimonides says, when you have a Jewish sovereignty, and when you have a temple, and when the Jews are back in mass in Israel, now you have the restoration of Jewish law as it was OG Torah, right? Original Torah with all 248 mitzvot, you have that. It comes back. Why? Because you have, you, the rest of the framework is there. So now you have, instead of 87 mitzvot to do, you have all 248 
And that's the last piece on the list of that text, of text number three that we cited. That's what the world, at least the Jewish world, looks like. We have more opportunities to do mitzvot, and we'll look at it exactly like that, as an opportunity. Not as a burden, but as an opportunity. To give you an example, to give you a parable, there was once a baby bird that was growing, 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 bigger, bigger, bigger. And one day, the little bird goes to her mother and says, Ma, Mom, what's going on? I have these heavy things that are weighing me down. I can't run like I used to. These heavy things coming out of my back and I can't move. It's all bulky and awkward. And the mother says, that's not a burden, my friend, my child, my daughter. These are wings and with these you can fly. So the question is, is a mitzvah a burden or a pair of wings? The answer, you probably know where I'm going with this. It's a privilege. It's not a burden. It's a privilege and it's an opportunity. And when Mashiach comes, the world, we're going to have more opportunities to do more mitzvot and it's going to be amazing. All right, so this is a bit of the image of the Messianic era. Is it miraculous? Maimani says it doesn't need to be miraculous. No need for miraculous. It's all an evolution. Let's talk about the doomsday visions. If you consult many religions and other belief systems, you might encounter words such as end of days, or maybe Armageddon, or maybe apocalypse. You heard these words before? Raise your hand if you've heard these words. Yes? All right. And what's common to all of them is a foreboding vision of death and destruction. The question is, is this the Jewish vision as well? Where does Judaism stand with regard to the apocalypse? Oh, hey there. Where does Judaism stand with regard to Armageddon? What is that? Is that even a thing? And let's ask Riva. Hi. Okay, so let's, uh, so let's find out. Is that a Jewish thing? Is it not a Jewish thing? So the first thing you need to know is that a lot of Jewish concepts got, for, for, for lack of a better term, co-opted by others. So you have a Jewish concept that's really more benign or peaceful or whatever that then gets co-opted and a little bit twisted, you know, a little bit, you know, modified. And the next thing you know, it's like this very threatening thing. Very similar thing happens with this whole end of days Armageddon apocalypse thing. You should know the word Armageddon. So Armageddon is Greek for Mount Megiddo. For Mount Megiddo. It's the place where Christianity maintains the final battle between Christianity and all of the other religions will take place when Christianity will be proven to be the, the ultimate truth. That's Armageddon, Mount Megiddo. It's Greek for Mount Megiddo. Apocalypse is Greek for a prophecy about the suffering at the end of days. These are not consistent with Jewish belief. Yes, in the Jewish prophets, it does speak about a battle that will take place, and it references a battle of Gog and Magog. Gog being a king and Magog being the king's people, a battle of Gog and Magog. But there's no indication that this is going to be a catastrophic holy war. Here's how Maimonides, again, Maimonides, that's, that's our go-to because it's codified in Jewish law. Here's how Maimonides describes this. I'm going to read this text. This will be text number, uh, no, not seven, not eight. This will be text number nine. Okay? This is page, for reference, page 259. Here we go. A straightforward interpretation 
of the prophet's words appears to imply that the war of Gog and Magog will occur at the beginning of the Messianic age. Before this war, a prophet will arise to inspire Israel to be upright and to prepare their hearts. As it is stated in Malachi, behold, I am sending you Elijah. Some sages stated that Elijah's coming will precede the coming of Mashiach. We spoke about that last week. All these, and look, look at how Maimonides concludes this. All these and similar matters cannot be definitively known, sorry, definitely known until they occur. For these matters are not clarified in the prophet's words. You know what Rambam is saying there? What Maimonides is saying? He's saying, you cannot base this off of prophecies that are super vague and super unclear. And who's to decide what it means? Oh, you decided that that's what it means. Who said? How do you know? All you know is what the prophets alluded to, but what the ultimate illusion is, illusion, not illusion, right? It's anyone's guess. This is Maimonides. Again, very consistent with a Maimonidean vision of the Messianic era. This is not a time of miracles necessarily and like fairy tales. It's a time of a better world. So this apocalyptic war that's going to result, who knows? Who knows what Gog and Magog means? Is it apocalypse? Armageddon? Probably not. Not from a Jewish perspective. And, and furthermore, I'll share with you this. Furthermore, it says in other sources that, well, it certainly says not to worry about it, about this war. And, but in other sources, it says that it may not even be necessary, any conflict uh, before the Messianic era, simply because the exile that we've been in is so long and so bitter and so, so horrible, frankly, for the last 2,000 years. I mean, just in Jewish history, just you know, pick any era and, and, and unfortunately you'll find something horrible, um, that there's no need for any other chaos or any other challenges like a war might incur. And I mean, war, there's unfortunately, there's still war today. So either way, it's not something that Judaism believes in as a necessary piece of the Messianic vision, that there's going to be this, this apocalypse and this doom and gloom and devastation, and then the temple will rise out of the ashes. It's not, it's not a Jewish vision of Mashiach. Now, there's some, there's, there is a war reference in the prophets, but Maimonides writes almost a thousand years ago, take it easy, don't panic, we don't know what it means. No reason to believe that it's anything to worry about. All right, so that's not a modern, new agey, like, it's all good, don't worry, be happy approach. That's a classic Jewish approach in halach, in Jewish law, from Maimonides. All right, so let's talk about a few, a few additional pieces. Now, of course, we know from our first session together, lesson number one, that the Messianic era will also feature additional elements, which are material blessings. And we spoke about this tonight as well. Um, so I'm going to pull up figure 6.3 from the book. I'll pull up the, the screen over here that has it. Um, let's look at, this is page 262, figure 6.3. So the Messianic prophecies, and you can see chapter and verse next to it. There, when Mashiach comes, when the Messiah comes, there will be no more war, crime, poverty, scarcity, and disability. None of these will be present in the Messianic era. We spoke about even on a physical level today how the world is evolving, keyword evolving, toward this. How there is, even despite what the media would have you believe, there's less war today than ever before. There's less crime. There's less poverty, far less poverty. There's far less scarcity. And 
there are incredible medical leaps to help with disability to remove the, the disability, to remove the, the obstacle from a person's ability. So, we, and we covered this well. We had a whole first class on this. I want to focus on text number 11, where Maimonides, once again, states this idea. And he states it in natural terms, not miraculous terms. Let's follow, follow with me, please, as I read this. The Messianic era is defined as the time in which sovereignty will revert to Israel and the Jewish people will return to the land of Israel, as we said before, and that will happen naturally because people will respect and love and appreciate each other, okay? In those days, it will be extremely easy for people to make a living. I'm going to speak about this. A minimum of labor will produce tremendous benefits. This is the meaning of our sage's statement that in the future, the land of Israel will bring forth ready-baked rolls and fine woolen garments. No, bread is not going to grow baked from the ground. And no, woolen garments are not going to grow on trees. But it's going to be much easier to produce than it's ever been. Let's continue, and then I'm going to make some comments on this. The great benefit of that era is that we will experience uh, respite from the oppression that prevents us from doing good. Uh, you know what? That's the line right there. That's the line that I was going to share with you. I'm just going to highlight it right now. If you, were, if you had a highlighter, boom, 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 right there. The great benefit of that era, I'm, I'm saying it again, is that we will experience respite from the oppression that prevents us from doing good. What holds us back? It's the hate. Why is it that we don't have just abundance of all the resources for everybody? Jealousy and greed, and hate, and dislike. Why should I help you? Why should I work for you? Why should I work with you? That's the problem. In an era of peace, in an era of love, in an era of mutual cooperation, everyone's got what they need. Everyone's got it all. There will be a widespread, back inside, there will be a widespread increase of wisdom. As it is stated, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God, as I mentioned earlier. War, war and battle will cease. As it is stated, nation will not lift up sword against nation. The human lifespan, listen to this, the human lifespan will be lengthened as a result of the absence of stress and suffering. Maimonides was a physician. You don't think he knew what killed people? You don't think he knew the stress that, that so pains us as a human, as, as a human race? He says, when you eliminate the anger, the jealousy, the hatred, etc., all those negative things, right? When you eliminate all of the above, you have a world in which there's abundance. Suddenly, everyone's got what they need. You have a world filled with knowledge because no one's fighting. People can, can focus on things that are more important. You have longer lifespans because people are healthier. They're less stressed, less anxious. Let's continue. But you see what I'm saying over here? This is a natural version of Mashiach, of the Messianic era. This is a non-miraculous. This is a, a, a very, very natural and, and evolutionary version of the Messianic era. He didn't say that the human lifespan will be lengthened because God will magically you know, add years to people's lives, transform the human being to living much longer. He didn't say that. He said... As a result of the absence of stress and suffering, people are going to live longer. That's what he said. I'm not saying this. this is Maimonides. 
Let's continue. We do not long and hope for the Messianic era simply because we desire an abundance of produce and, pro and property, or because we wish to ride horses, I guess that was the thing back then, or drink wine to the company of music, still a thing, as some confused people think. That's not why we want Mashiach for all the pomp and circumstance. Rather, our prophets and pious yearn for that era because then the righteous will assemble and good conduct and wisdom will prevail. It will be possible then to observe the entire Torah without worry or fear. Ultimately, what is Mashiach about? What is the Messianic era about? It's a time of goodness and blessing and material prosperity so that it will support the spiritual blessings as well. So what are we going to do when we win a million bucks? Nothing? As I started the class with, no, not nothing. We'll be able to focus on what's really meaningful, significant, and important in life. We'll be able to focus on the richness, the spiritual depth of life, as opposed to running around, hating on each other, and, and competing for whatever we believe is a zero-sum game, and so we have to get the last before someone else gets it. This scarcity, this animosity, this jealousy, this anger, the hatred, it's all an exilic, exile mentality. It's a galut mentality, and it's, as we said in a previous class, it's false, and it's fake news. It's not real. It's a dream. When I say dream, not like in a positive way, in a negative way. It's a nightmare. And Mashiach is waking up. And the truth comes out. I actually don't hate you. I love you. I respect you. You do you. I do me. Let's get along. Let's work with each other, not against each other. Prosperity. Good health. Time to focus on the spiritual. Made in the shade. Everything's great. Miracle. Progress. Not miracle. Progress. That's what we're gunning for. Sorry, wrong... Uh... Bad, bad uh, use of, of, of language there. That's what we are aiming for. We're aiming, I don't know if that's better. We're a, I think it is. We're aiming for an evolved, progressive world that is exactly what we're aiming for. By the way, this leads me to a question. You know, somebody might say, well, in this world, what are we going to do? Oh my gosh, we're not fighting to earn a living. What are we going to do? Just TikTok? All day? What Insta? We're going to do grams? Instagram? Like, that's it? Like, what, what's going to happen? I just, I don't, I'm not going to give you an answer, but I want to give you a perspective. Imagine 100 years ago, you went to the Jew in the, yeah, imagine 100 years ago, you went to the Jew in the shtetl, and you said to the Jew in the shtetl, you know what life is going to be like 100 years from now. You don't have, you don't have horses, and you don't have, if you don't have to fart. You want groceries, you press a button. Done, they delivered, Instacart, right? Yeah, done, easy, easy peasy. Person's gonna say, what am I gonna do all day? I just hit a few buttons, it'll take me 20 minutes and all my day's work is done. What am I gonna do? Here's the deal, we gotta figure it out. There's plenty to, plenty to do. Because you, when, you're, when you're entrenched in a certain reality, you can't see outside of it, and so it's really hard to have a vision of what that looks like. But trust me, when Mashiach comes and we're no longer fighting each other for the, for the scraps, we have a bigger vision. We'll have plenty to do, plenty to focus on, no problem. Don't worry, none of us are going to have any extra time. We're going to focus on the real important things of, of life. All right, a few final points before we close out the class. A few very important points. 
All right, so when the, when the Messianic era comes, when Mashiach comes, the Messianic era, we, we've, we've explored Maimonides' perspective. No miracles necessarily, an evolved world, a beautiful world, all within our reach, all within our doing. It's in our control, it's in our hands. But what about one detail that you can't explain naturally? What about one of the ultimate prophecies or promises of the Messianic era that I challenge anyone to explain physically or logically? And that is, as you may have guessed, the notion of hametim, the resurrection of the dead. How is that going to be pulled? You want to tell me that love, peace, prosperity, building a temple on the ground, gathering Jews back to Israel, living under Jewish sovereignty and others respecting Jewish people, getting along, helping. I get it. Yes, all natural. But you're telling me that people, our loved ones whom we've loved and lost, are going to come back, souls in bodies, bodies that are no longer alive, no longer with flesh on them. You're telling me that they're going to come back to life and that's natural and normal? How do you explain this? My friends, this is not my question. This is not a question on me. This is a question on Maimonides. And guess who addresses it? You guessed it, Maimonides. In fact, some people were, were deducing from Maimonides' teachings that we've done throughout tonight's class that Olam Kemin Hago Noheg, that the world is going to be as normal, I mean better, but normal, that Maimonides perhaps did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Maybe he didn't believe that the dead are going to come back to life because that's not normal. That's not natural. So maybe he doesn't believe in it. Well, that's not true. Of course Maimonides believes in it. Number one, it's normative Jewish belief. Number two, Maimonides in his 13 principles of Jewish faith lists that one as the resurrection as number 13. Maimonides himself, elsewhere in this Mishnah Torah, he talks about the resurrection of the dead. So you cannot say that Maimonides didn't think it was going to happen. Are you He's the first one that thinks it's going to happen. So how is that natural and normal? Maimonides was moved to write an entire essay on the resurrection of the dead. Yeah, you heard me right. He wrote an entire work only about the resurrection of the dead and how that's a fundamental Jewish belief. How do you reconcile it, though, with the world going as normal, no miracles? You don't. You don't. Which leads us to conclude, as Richard mentioned before, that there are two stages of the Messianic era. Stage one, an evolved world, a beautiful world, a perfected world. Stage two, the miracles begin. And first and foremost, the resurrection of the dead. There's no getting around it. Not that we're trying to, by the way. There's, but there's no mistake. Better. There's no mistake. There's no mistake in whatever the phrase is. You can't mistake this, mistaken this. It's going to happen and it's going to be a miracle and it's, uh, and it's part of the vision of Maimonides. Let me share my screen with you and I'm going to read this and uh, we'll have the picture of resurrection as described by Maimonides. Maimonides, his epistle on resurrection, he says as follows, it is important to realize that when I stated that certain prophecies are to be understood allegorically, this is not absolute. No prophetic communication informed me 
says Maimonides, that they are allegorical, nor did I receive a tradition from the sages and prophets that these particular matters are parables. In other words, what he's saying is that I don't know for sure what's allegory or not. I'm not a prophet. Let me explain, says Maimonides, what brought me to the allegorical approach. I strive to bring harmony between the Torah and human intellect, which is why I explain things in a natural way whenever possible. However, what, listen to this, when it is self-evident that the connotation is miraculous indeed and it is not possible to interpret otherwise, I say that it is a miracle. That's all you need to know. That's it. Maimonides, the one who explained it naturally, also believes in resurrection of the dead and also believes that it's a miracle. He was only trying to say as much as natural as possible without saying it must be miraculous. Could it be miraculous? Sure. Does it need to be? No. But the resurrection of the dead? Yeah, that needs to be miraculous, obviously. Maimonides had to write this because people were misunderstanding him. The bottom line, let's continue, is that regarding specific prophecies about the redemption that do not involve the fundamentals of our Jewish faith, it matters not whether one believes that they are literal or allegorical, like the war of Gog and Magog, by the way, that I mentioned before. It's not critical to fundamentals of Jewish faith whether there will be or won't be a war before the end of times. How is that critical to Jewish faith? So whether that war is literal or allegorical and even literal, what it means, who cares? Sorry, not who cares, but who knows? We will have to wait for their realization, may it occur speedily in our days, to discover whether these statements refer to actual miracles or are simply allegories for natural changes. But when it comes to resurrection of the dead, yeah, that's a miracle. So I hope this makes sense. I hope this clarifies um, the perspective. Now, wh why are we going so deep into Maimonides? Why not just say, yeah, the whole thing is a miracle? I hope by now you know the answer. Because the whole point of Mashiach is that our world becomes better. The whole point of the Messianic era is that we have evolved, and so it makes sense. It makes sense to follow a Maimonidean approach, not just because we're trying to reconcile faith with, with, with reason, not just because we want to you know, make things sound less wild and crazy. No, but because on a spiritual level, we realize that the ultimate is a world that it itself is on board with the messianic ideals. The ultimate is the treasure in the mountain and not a treasure that comes from somewhere else. The ultimate is uh, you and I becoming a mensch, more of a mensch, not some sort of you know, miraculous mensch powder being dropped on us while we're sleeping. That's not the ultimate. The ultimate is transformation, not being forced. It's about transformation from the inside out, which is why Maimonides' perspective is so beautiful, because he paints a picture of a world that's better from the inside out. How, what about resurrection of the dead? All right, that's outside in. That, that requires some divine intervention, yes. But the other pieces, inside out. My friends, this takes us to the end of our journey, and it's been an epic journey indeed. We have learned so much about a topic that is so essential to Judaism and yet so often neglected in Jewish discourse. Unfortunately, it is a not well-discussed topic, the topic of Mashiach, the Messianic era. We've studied and explored Judaism's vision for a better world. Number one, beginning with the belief that yes, this is going to get better. The course is called This Can Happen. That's the first thing we established. This can happen. We believe it, we know it, and we can make it happen. 
We, we explore Judaism's vision of this better world, a world of inner and outer, physical and spiritual peace. This is the world, honestly, that every decent human being wants, even if they don't know to say the word Mashiach. Everyone, every decent human being wants world peace, wants plenty, peace, harmony, camaraderie, love, and not hate. Mashiach is not a fringe belief. It's seared in our collective striving heart and soul. We all want Mashiach. And today we learned something remarkable. Mashiach need not be the product of miracles. No, you and I can make it happen. It's up to us. It's up to how we treat each other. It's up to how we treat ourselves. It's up to how we focus on our priorities and our purpose in life. When we, inv- when we evolve, so does our world. And that is Mashiach. Sure, there are miracles, resurrection of the dead being the prime example of tonight's class, but that comes later. Not later like we're pushing it off, but that's already the next stage. Once the world, once we perfect our end of the deal, then we get the resurrection of the dead. We need to do our job now. And so, my friends, I want to conclude with one final text, powerful text from Maimonides. Maimonides reminds us That all of this, creating a better world, is literally up to us. The dramatic conclusion of this course, text number 14, page 270. You should view yourself at all times as equally balanced with merits and faults and view the world similarly, equally balanced with merits and faults, Therefore, if you perform one mitzvah, you tip the balance, your own and that of all humankind, and affect personal and global deliverance and salvation. My friends, the secret is in your hands. I don't know if that's a good use of, uh, of, of metaphor and, and, and phraseology. But the power, let's do power. The power is in your hands. The secret lies within. You want Mashiach? You want a better world? Yes. It starts with you. And with me. I'm not, I'm not only, only putting on you. I'm putting on me also. It starts with us. We need to make a better world for ourselves and for all of us. And we need to start in earnest now. We know what Mashiach is. We know what the vision is. We know what it looks like. We know we have the... the, the it's painted. It's like a Bob Ross painting, it's, or like any painting. It's ready to go. You can see it. You can touch it. It's up to us to make it happen. And as Rambam just taught us, as Maimonides just taught us, one mitzvah, one more mitzvah can tip the scale for good. For good. Friends, let's make it happen. One more mitzvah to make the world a better place. Thank you for joining me for this course, This Can Happen. I sincerely appreciate you being on this journey together with me, together with all of us. And I know without a shadow of a doubt that you and I can and will make a difference. Sometimes we think of ourselves, who am I? If, If the greats before us couldn't do it, doesn't matter. We don't look at anyone else. 
We don't judge ourselves negatively, God forbid. We can do it. We will do it. And we will do it now. Let us say, Amen. I know you guys are all muted, but I, I, I felt the Amen even through the, the, there you go, even through the, pleasure. Beautiful course, great with a lot of passion and a lot of mindfulness and, and, and so, so, so beautiful. And Thank I you. love your, the smile of your mother. <laughs> it's, it's so beautiful to see how, how to look at you with the smile for me. That's all because it's it's a it's so so much love. Thank and you, thank you. Beautiful, beautiful. That, that she was with with us. Yes, thank you. I concur. One one thing I want to mention. Um, well, actually, I want to mention a few things. First of all, thank you. So um, we have so there's there's a few things there's a few things that are that are very um, that are very relevant. So number one. Um, of course, this course and really every, all of the courses that we do, all of our education, bring education, a, um, high level adult Jewish learning to the community is only possible with our help from the community and our, and our generous sponsors, whether it's sponsors in gen sponsoring the program programming in general or specific courses. I want to take an opportunity once again to thank our course sponsors from the bottom of my heart for helping bring this study to our community and beyond. So Eve Bogan, Sarah Howell and David Leone, Bill and Pam Lewis, Joy Maxey, Jay and Susan Rosenheck, Ronnie and Madeline Spiegelman, and Roger and Isla Wartell, thank you very much for helping sponsor this course and bringing the Torah study to all of us. Thank you. I also want to mention that we are starting a new course next week. Same bat time, same bat channel, Tuesday night, 8 p.m., on Zoom, and the class is going to be on the Talmud, specifically on some of the most bizarre, wild, totally out there stories that you've ever heard from the Talmud. And we're going to be exploring the stories of the Talmud and breaking them down and showing their secret meaning and how relevant and personal in a profound way these stories are. So if you've, if you would, if you've ever wanted to, or if you've studied or want to study Talmud, if you're interested in storytelling, if you love solving a mystery and a puzzle, if you like academic analysis, if you like life discovering and deciphering life lessons from ancient texts, this course is for you. It starts next Tuesday night, June 15th at 8 p.m. It's called Curious Tales of the Talmud. It's a three-part series, and we're doing it online on Zoom. You can sign up at our, on our website, intownjewishacademy.org. So that's announcement number one. Announcement number two is this Sunday, we're having an in-person event called an Evening of Inspiration, honoring the life and legacy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory. Sunday is the third day of the Hebrew month of Tammuz, and it marks the 27th yard site, the 27th anniversary of the passing of the Rebbe, whose vision is behind the in-town Jewish Academy and Chabad in town and 5,000 plus Chabad centers around the world. And really, the visionary behind what we would call today Jewish outreach and, and a lot of what you see in Jewish education around the world owes, owes its, uh, its vision to the Rebbe's vision. And so this Sunday, we'll be gathering in person at Chabad in town, 
on, uh, on Ponce Place, right around the corner from Ponce City Market, to celebrate the life and legacy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. We have a beautiful film that we're going to be showing, honoring the Rebbe's teachings about loving each other, which is perfect for tonight's, perfectly in sync with tonight's theme. And we have the opportunity to hear from a scholar and a spiritual leader from California. He also happens to be my dear brother-in-law, Rabbi Moshe Kesselman, who will be sharing some reflections on the Rebbe's life and legacy in his talk entitled Stories to Stir the Soul. It all starts Sunday at 6.30 p.m. It opens with a dessert and wine reception, and then we segue into the program at 7 o'clock. So please join us Sunday. I want to mention also very, very quickly a few other programs that we have. We have upcoming a program called Escape from Cairo, which is the story, true story, first person. He's telling the story of young, a young man from born in Cairo, Egypt, who was raised to dislike Jews and who on his own came to learn more about Jews and Judaism and now advocates on behalf of human rights and peace and, 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 and harmony and on behalf of the Jewish people in Israel. Join us for Escape from Cairo. It is an unbelievable story of replacing hate with love. That is going to be Sunday, June 20th. We also have a few more, I'm not going to give you dates on these, but a few more upcoming events. One is called The Archaeological Claim to Jerusalem, all about the archaeology of what's buried underneath the holy city of Jerusalem and the Jewish artifacts with the Jewish Indiana Jones. We had him last year. This time of year, we're going to have him again coming up. So save the date. I think it's July 20th, but don't quote me on that. It's sometime in July. And then we have another session, a special session on the origins of the Jewish printing press and how and, and rare Jewish texts. More information will be forthcoming for these, for these, um, these, uh, these programs. So take a look at your email and at the website, intownjewishacademy.org. I want to conclude with one, one final announcement. This course was part of the Jewish Learning Institute flagship course, courses, course series. So this is a JLI course. Um, the JLI produces original courses every year, and we are one of the few hundred flagships around the world, and we are one of the anchor flagships that teaches these courses. In fact, as you know from this course, I'm one of the course authors of these courses. Um, we just announced the three courses coming up for next, the next academic year, so the fall, winter, and spring courses of the upcoming year. I'm going to give you the titles, and so stay tuned for more information. The fall course is entitled Outsmarting Antisemitism. It's hard to outrun it. It's time to outsmart it. It's all about outsmarting antisemitism. That's the fall course. The winter course is called Meditation from Sinai, Torah Mindfulness and divine spirituality to help you think, feel, live, and be better. And the third course, which is the next, next spring course, is called Beyond Right, the values that shape Judaism's civil code. Stay tuned for more information. These courses are going to be fantastic. But as you know, we have many, many, many more courses and programs and events. So these are the JLI flagship courses, but we certainly have tremendous array of opportunities now and in the coming year ahead, and I can't wait to see you all very soon and to study together. I want to wish you a Laila Tov, a good night, and I want to wish all of you peace and blessing and love in your life, in your families, in your communities, and in all of our hearts, and let us say, Amen. Thank you for joining. It's great to see everybody.
Laila Tov. Take care. Bye, everybody.